everyone. Welcome to the Carolina Weather Group. We're happy to have you this evening, a Wednesday evening, uh, closing in on the end of 2020. And we just closed the book on the 2020 hurricane season. And tonight we have with us our friend Mark Suddeth. Seems like this has become an annual tradition where uh, we kind of get together with Mark in, in the first part of December as we close out hurricane season to kind of look back on the season. And, and my goodness, we have so much to look back mm. forward uh, we were talking before this that uh, we've got stuff up just because we can't remember all the storms right off the top of our heads. So uh, we will uh, we'll get into that. Uh, Mark, uh, for those who may have not caught you on previous shows, tell us a little bit about who you are and uh, how you got called into uh, tracking these hurricanes. And then we'll kind of go into the conversation. That's great to be back, Scotty and everybody else. Thanks for having me a part of this again. I grew up in eastern North Carolina, and, you know, when you grow up in the Carolinas, if you're not interested in the weather, and, you know, then I don't know what to, to tell you, because we have four distinct seasons, and we have a severe season, a winter season, um, the spring season gets kind of crazy sometimes, and then, of course, hurricane season, depending on the decade and how active it is, can be very much a part of your daily life, and uh, as a kid, I just had this bug. I don't know where it comes from. I really don't. Um, and so long story short, 25 year career. I followed my passion, went to school for geography, studied weather and climate and statistics and really focused on hurricanes. So they don't have a degree for hurricaneologist. That's not a thing. But if if there was a definition, that's what I do. I study hurricanes. I don't forecast them. So I'm not a meteorologist. I'm a geographer who studies hurricanes. So that's my degree. That's my area of expertise, my specialty. So since 1995, getting that degree from uh, UNC by the sea, UNCW down here in Wilmington, that's what I've done. And I blazed my own trail, started hurricanetrack.com in 1999, did a lot of different projects and awareness and computer animation back in the day, uh, some awards from FEMA and different uh, weather service offices for my work in hurricane awareness. And if you're going to be an expert in something, you can't just read about it in books, right? Uh, eventually, you know, you're going to go into medicine. You eventually work on the cadavers for real. You don't just read about it or hear about it in the lab. You eventually get your hands in there and you actually work on a real dead person and you become a doctor. So same thing with weather. You got to go out in it to really study it up close and personal. And that's what I started doing from the get go. Um, people call it hurricane chasing. That's fine. I call it hurricane intercepting because you don't really chase hurricanes. And I've had different ways of doing that, you know, different vehicles. And now we're in the age of unmanned cameras and small boxes and uh, everything's tiny and easy to deploy. Uh, the age of crowdfunding is upon us to where basically, you know, whatever I want to do, people support it because social media has allowed that to really grow. And it really, really manifested itself in 2020 with the mega season that we had, putting all of my experience to use, a great group of people behind me, taking what we do, the educational aspect, keeping it science-based, keep it real, keeping safe. And we tackled uh, one of the busiest seasons in history. So here we are. And Mark, you know, a lot of work goes into it. And this year, a little bit more, I would say, as we start to look to hurricane season around March into April, uh, that's when the seasonal predictions come out. Also, 
kind of buried in that was when COVID really started to hit the area. And so, um, you know, I I know as you're starting to get prepared for the season, you know, then you had to where, you know, uh, look at the COVID aspect, but um, tell us a little bit about that, how, how maybe COVID, um, I, I don't know if it interfered with your, with your, your, um, your job, but tell us a little bit about that and also the preseason predictions that kind of came out at the same time where it, you were talking about it looked like we were going to have a busy season anyway. Yes, it appeared as far back as February, some of the long-range modeling was indicating the possibility of a favorable season ahead. Um, and it's interesting regarding the COVID situation. At the end of February, as part of my off-season work that I'm able to do, um, I went up to my first Lake Effect snow event. This is kind of a little side story in uh, Western New York. And I flew into Syracuse on uh, like February 29th or somewhere around there. And um, was up there for a few days covering this big Lake Effect event. And by the way, I'm hooked. Lake Effect snow is awesome. And I remember when I got to the Charlotte airport uh, from Wilmington, it was like a last minute thing. I airlined a bunch of cameras with me. And I was like, I'm gonna go for it. So I flew into Charlotte and it was packed and uh, which it usually is. And there was a few people wearing masks. And I remember I got off the plane from Wilmington and walked into the concourse there, packed concourse, whatever it was, probably came into concourse D from Wilmington. And on those big monitors at Charlotte Douglas, President Trump was coming out. I thought, oh, this, this can't be good. This cannot be good. If he's gonna come to the podium, while I flew that 45 minute flight from Wilmington to Charlotte, something bad has either happened, you know, internationally or this COVID thing is finally going to break, break loose. Cause I had been watching it and learning about it. My wife's in the medical field and that was it. And so I got back like March 3rd or 4th or something like that. And the world changed within two weeks, basketball got canceled. Our lives turned upside down. And then coincidentally with that, this parallel universe began where the hurricane season forecasts, at least from the people that really track this stuff, Ben Knoll, um, Mike Ventress, Dr. Ventress, uh, Eric Webb, myself, you know, Levi Cowan, those of us that are really, I don't want to say obsessed, but we are watching this very closely. Um, we saw it. It was like, Oh man, you know, the, the modeling showing this, standing wave over the Indian Ocean in Africa and the, the potential of La Nina and the warm Atlantic. I mean, just the signals were overwhelming. All the while, this COVID thing looked like it was just going to get out of control. And we were very worried that it would get so bad that we might not be allowed to travel interstate-wise. And it's interesting, though, isn't it, that once we got to Memorial Day, it's kind of like the country threw up their hands and said, okay, uncle, we, you know, and we had to deal with the economy and that's a whole other thing. And as it turns out, we were able to travel just fine. Uh, kind of get to the punchline here from the COVID side. We took precautions. We were smart. Um, you know, if we were in an area where they mandated masks, we wore them. Um, I don't like it. I had to do an interview uh, with a mask on with CBS this morning. And it was the weirdest thing in my entire career. Uh, I've got a Hurricane Track branded mask, you know, at least I did that. And the interview, I think it was Omar, I can't remember his last name, sorry. He's six feet away or more, and they got this big boom mic like it's they're shooting a movie. 
and everybody's wearing a mask and we're outside. I was like, this is just screwed up. Like, I'm not used to this. You know what I mean? And it just became annoying, you know, that anytime we took pictures or with any, any of, you know, we were with Cantori during Laura and we got a group shot with him and Charles Peake and we all had to put our mask on because you can't put that, ah, you know? So the COVID thing was ever present, always there. But I will say, interestingly enough, we traveled 25,000 miles at least starting late May with some testing and some other stuff. Tropical Storm Arthur all the way through Ada in Florida. And we had a team of about five of us, I think, and not a single one of us ever tested positive for COVID. We somehow enable, were able to avoid it. Knock on plastic. <laughs> that's yeah. spectacular. I mean, that's you know, just the, the precautions and the worry and all that and all that I know you have to do and the people you have to interact with. Yeah. Uh, it's great to hear that, you know, that all of that turned out to be, to turn out to be pretty good. So uh, that was a big worry. You're absolutely right. It was a concern of ours and it's a concern. I'll say this going into the winter in terms of how bad things are going to probably get that interstate travel may become difficult because I'm in the position to be able to cover winter storms like never before. But that's a story for another day. I think there's some ways to manage it with testing. And looks like I'm going to get a swab up the nose more times than I want to be able to cross into areas like New York. But if that's what I got to do to be able to still do my work, so be it. Maybe 2021 will be a different story six months from now. We're hoping so. We're hoping Indeed. so. Speaking of, of hurricane season, traditionally, you know, and this is another show conversation we could have. It, it starts June 1st. But this year... Yeah. I guess May kind of threw us a little hint of, hey, this is going to be a crazy season. We had three named tropical systems in May. Uh, in fact, one being Bertha, you know, just off the coast of South Carolina there. Uh, you know, you said you're trying to get out and test stuff and uh, the, these named storms starting early. So any uh, recollection on that where you you kind of in hurry up mode, trying to get everything tested out so uh, you could get out. In the right. Road. The end of May, mid-May, really, I think it was like the 18th or so that Arthur formed. And it impacted the Outer Banks um, indirectly slash directly. I mean, it's all in how you look at it. There were impacts there. Uh, and then at the end of May, the team and I went out to Texas to uh, test our weather balloon project. We try to do that annually. And we also kind of dabbled in some severe weather ideas that we're going to put forth this coming May of 2021. And during that, as you alluded to, um, Bertha formed like overnight one night and came into the South Carolina coast. And it's like, oh, well. You know, can't get back in time for that, but it was a low impact event. And then when I got back after Memorial Day, it was time to immediately leave and go to the Mississippi coast and meet up with Greg Nordstrom for Tropical Storm Cristobal. And then we had a little bit of a break uh, for landfall action. And I decided, because I really like to study the monsoon out in the desert southwest, um, that at the end of July, I thought, okay, and you guys know this. Typically, July is when there's the most sal present, Saharan air layer. The pressures are usually pretty high. We hadn't had any big-time main development region like 05 um, mirroring yet, right? Remember in 05, we had Dennis, early July, Emily, you know, Cat 5. I mean, we didn't have that this year. So I thought, all right, people are starting to fly again. I'm going to take my chances. I took some equipment out there. And I went out to the desert Southwest and what happens? Hannah. And I'm like, I just, I can't, 
what am I going to do? I'm not going to just fly into Houston and drive down to Kennedy County where there's more cows than people and just stand in it. I don't have any equipment. So Hannah got past me and I hate it. I hate it when one gets past me, but if there's anyone to miss, it was Hannah. Cause look, it came into a, a County where, you know, the, the cow to people ratio is a, a million to one. We've made it all the way to H, Hannah. And if we're going in alphabetical order, my alphabet correctly, we're going to have Isaias next. Uh, that is the most prominent storm that affected the Carolinas this year. Could you go into just a conversation about how that went for you uh, and what you saw in the eastern half of the Carolinas? First of all, it was a challenge pronouncing it. And it's funny because now I can say it just fine. And I even had a friend of ours down in San Juan send me a video and we are getting ready for tropical storm East Aeas. And I, I couldn't say it. It was so annoying. Uh, and then, of course, after it made landfall, I was able to say it just fine. Um, we thought, you know, that was the end of July into early August and kind of a little earlier than we expect them around here in terms of the peak. Uh, and it, it struggled and struggled and probably kind of left over in that unfavorable mid-level dryness uh, left over from the big sal events of, of earlier in the season. But then again, boy, that last 12 hours right before landfall in Brunswick County, Isaias took off and it was very, very surprising. Um, and, and, you know, another 12 hours over water for that. And it absolutely would have been a category three and it pushed a massive surge up the Cape Fear river. Um, it's interesting because I could have just stayed here in Wilmington I went down to Florida. It was another one of those ones like Dorian. And we all remember, it looked like it was trying to do kind of a Dorian uh, redo, right? And, you know, kind of got everybody spooked. But the models weren't as aggressive with it as they were for Dorian. So there was some doubt. But Isaias was impactful, massive surge up the Cape Fear River compared to, uh, I think it was another record, uh, the record before Matthew. I think it was Matthew. Starting to get to be too many of them was uh, Hazel. And I think Matthew broke Hazel's surge record at the Cape Fear River in Wilmington, not Wrightsville Beach, not the Brunswick County beaches, but the actual Cape Fear River gauge. Matthew broke Hazel's record, Florence broke Matthew's record, and Isaias broke all of them. That is incredible. 54, 1954 is Hazel, and then 16, 18, and 20, we broke that record again. That is insane. So we're, you know, we know that you, you place cameras around. Are you, we're seeing other uh, chasers, or I should say intercept, interceptors, as you would say. Um, Tim Reed, for instance, you know, they're, they're starting to bring a little bit, they're bringing more gadgetry into the chase, right? So um, are you bringing anything else? Like they have the surgeonator. Are you bringing like, um, you know, water level meters or any, anything like, uh, I know you have anemometers on hand. Uh, and cameras, but what else are you bringing for your equipment for these for these interceptions? Well, first of all, it's great that other people are able to fund and do these things. And no matter what you name them and who they are, if it if it benefits the science at the end of the day and creates public awareness, uh, it's a big enough world that hey, bring it. That's great. Uh, the more, the better. I wish I had time to sit back and watch what some of these people were doing more, but we're all so busy, we hardly even get to see each other. Um, especially in a season like 2020. And so one of the things that we have really focused on is just more cameras, have as many of them out there as possible and put them in areas that are going to capture the impacts in a way that we can see what's going on that'll help the local officials, the local media, 
And then from there, regional and national interest, whether it's the Weather Channel or even the National Hurricane Center, we provide the feeds to them, obviously at no charge. I mean, even if you wanted to charge them, good luck with that. Um, this coordination and camaraderie with all of us, it pays off because we're able to let them see their forecast verify in real time. And I've done it long enough that I know where to put them, where we can capture those impacts. And if it's a surge that we're wanting to see, which is mostly what they're for, uh, we've done a really good job of that, especially going back the last five years. Um, but the answer is more, just more of them. And the crowdfunding through Patreon, it really exploded this year. And I, I cannot account for why. Um, you know, maybe more people were at home. I don't know. I mean, I've had the ability to crowdfund what we've been doing for probably 15 years, but Patreon has been around only for a few years. So I really can't explain it. But all of a sudden, especially for Hurricane Laura, it really took off. But it's not just the funding from people becoming supporters and donating, if you will, $10 a month, people literally sent us equipment. We'd say, hey, hey, look, we need more Nest Cams. We need more drop sensors, these Kestrel sensors. We need cases. We need batteries. I'm not kidding, guys. And this is just wonderful. I would open my door, and there'd be just stacks of boxes from Amazon or from B&H Photo uh, from people that sent stuff. And it was people from all over the world, not just the United States, and we would go put that equipment into place and we'd literally hold the boxes of, Hey, you know, Pete, this is the box you sent. And, and that's amazing. So we had the funding to create more stuff than we've ever had before. And the only thing I would say though, that stunk this year was that a majority of the landfalls were at night, big thumbs down for that. Mother nature owes us one. Um, and that was really horrible, you know, and that, that limits the ability to see the effects because here's what I say about the video. Video is data. And that's a real thing. It's called photogrammetry. And we use that very much in our work to see patterns, just simple things like seeing high watermarks to the timing of everything, the direction. And we can extract data from that video for years to come. Altogether, if you know you or one of the people that is uh, helping you set up equipment, what does the kind of average day look like for you all as the storm approaches and the morning starts and and what does it look like from from that point out that is a great question uh, nobody's ever asked it that way before um i'll say this year it was the most well-oiled machine that we've ever had and i owe that to the tremendous amount of support that we had through crowdfunding that we were able to afford hotel rooms for each individual team member because, and you say, well, why is that important? Because sleep or the lack thereof is your biggest enemy. And you start making mistakes when you're sleep deprived. And that becomes a safety issue and it becomes an operational issue that you can screw something up and you don't get another chance at it. But safety is the primary concern. So everybody gets a good night's sleep because everybody's got their own room. So you're not having, you know, Brent over there, Greg over there messing with his phone or I'm trying to watch the latest office episode of my iPad to keep my mind off of things and I keep him awake or whatever. So when we get up, we all get together and we just kind of see what's happening. What's the latest track show? What's the latest from the hurricane center? You have people from the outside feeding us information. And it's just amazing, Dan, how laser focused we are. I can't, it's like 
it's so organized and so, um, like I said, well-oiled, especially this year, because there were so many pieces that came together perfectly that we work together well as a team. We all respect each other's opinion. We're all experts for the most part uh, at what we're doing. We have experience, you know, certainly Greg and I do. Uh, and then these people that are helping out from the crowdfunding perspective, they come along and help out too. And they just go along. They trust us and we just do it. And it's crazy because you're counting down to zero when landfall is coming, you know, there is no timeout, you know, wait, we got to, you know, and so the day is spent figuring out where we're going to go, handling emails that are coming in, social media interactions. Maybe somebody's suggesting you can set a camera up in front of my shop. I have a condo you can use. We have this, you know, the sheriff here wants to talk to you. He's going to help you. The weather service It's just, it's, we have producers now that feed us the best information and so it's kind of like a network TV uh, deal. You know, you think about what it takes to send all those OCMs out there from the Weather Channel. And we're starting to, to get there with the amount of people helping us. And in a year like 2020, I mean, it just ran as smooth as it could possibly could. And um, we work until dark. Uh, and then we usually try to find if it's open, uh, the nearest chain steakhouse, Texas Roadhouse, Longhorn or whatever. And we go there, we have a good meal and we recap everything and we get another good night's sleep. You know, it's, it's just, I guess after doing it this long, you get settled into a routine, but this year, especially it worked so well that we never had any hiccups. Mark, there were a lot of other storms that you chased during the season. I think you said 10 in total. We talked about uh, Isaias and Laura and a couple others, but can you kind of give us a bit of a rundown on the rest of the season? There were other heavy hitters. Um, that you guys observed. Uh, so what were, what were some of your biggest stories? So after Laura, uh, we got back and there was not much time to rest. The season just kept spitting them out. And of course, the next significant one for us was Sally. And Sally was one of these ones that had a lot of potential and it rattled a lot of nerves. And it really looked like it was going to threaten Mississippi in a big way. Um, and then it kind of, you know, played cat and mouse with everybody. Very slow. Is it going to strengthen? Is it not? And, you know, oh, and now it's headed towards Mobile Bay. And, oh, maybe even Western Panhandle of Florida. It was very challenging because it was so darn slow moving. And the intensity guidance was just crazy. It was like, you know, it was nobody could figure it out, literally. So that was the most challenging because it kept us on our toes um, in a very familiar area. I mean, I know the Central Gulf Coast very, very well. And yet it was still very challenging. But at the end of the day, um, the success that we had with that, because it was another nighttime event, and this is where my experience came into play, I focused on the river flooding that was coming. And I worked very closely with some of the weather service offices down there, and even uh, one of the meteorologists for the state of Florida. And, you know, we don't have hundreds of cameras, but we had enough that we put some on the coast to see what the coastal impacts were from surge. But again, Sally, Four o'clock in the morning or something landfall, you know, another thumbs down uh, for that. But the flooding during the day was going to be this rapid rise and then a pretty rapid fall, unlike the Carolinas where it's like a week later, Sally's flooding was going to be much quicker. So we put a camera system on uh, the Fish River in Alabama. Uh, it's just a small river system down there. People in the area, they know it well. And then up on the Perdido River, just inside the Florida line. 
And boy, what we captured there was one of my bucket list, like, I want to do this. The river forecast was for like, you know, record-breaking crests uh, in excess of 20 feet for both of these, if I'm not mistaken. So we purposely put both camera systems at about seven feet. And exactly what you think happened, happened. They went underwater. And the one in Fish River kept going. It was a GoPro camera. We didn't have enough. The, the, the live signal was not strong enough there. And that camera, you see the water come up. It submerges the camera. And then because of all the red clay and the soils down there, the water turns uh, blood red. And we estimate, because the camera was seven feet, the Fish River crested at like 20, 21, that the camera was more than likely under five, six, seven feet of water for about eight hours. And that little box that it was inside of, the GoPro, not even a molecule, a compound molecule of a hydrogen or an oxygen to be found, absolutely bone dry. And that is amazing footage. And it'll really help to show the impacts of river flooding. Um, you know, we had pressure sensors out as well. The eye went right over one of them in Gulf Shores, Alabama. But again, the darn thing hitting at night, there was just not much we could do in terms of the visuals. Um, and, you know, so you have to shift and say, okay, what are the other impacts here in that river flooding? That's what I wanted to take away. And that's exactly what we captured. Then I love to, I love to ask just real quick, because you just mentioned yeah. that. How do you get the live data out of these stations in, in the conditions that would generally seem hazardous um, and maybe not conductive for uh, good coverage? We use Verizon as our um, LTE provider. And um, I am a Verizon customer. They're not a sponsor. Um, and so I'm just putting that out there. They don't pay me to say that. And it's just a matter of luck, honestly. You know, that their engineering and their mitigation that they put in, you know, they don't want their network to go down. Sprint doesn't, you know, AT&T doesn't because people get mad. And we need the network to stay up. Obviously, all of us do. Um, and there are conditions where, yes, it will go down. We lose our feeds, especially in big hurricanes like Laura. They will they'll go offline, certainly. But that's what the GoPros are there for. They back up those live feeds, especially if it's going to be in the daytime. And um, for Sally, um, slow moving, not really intense. And so you're not going to get like a, a gut punch to the network. It's more of a long process. Um, and everything stayed up as, as, uh, as far as I can remember. Um, but that's what we do is we use Verizon LTE and we will be investing because of our strong support from crowdfunding, some of that money into even more technology uh, for 2021 that'll give us um, hopefully double the bandwidth, if you will, or at least the range to pick up towers. Maybe the tower nearest our, our camera is out five, 10 miles away, we could pick that one up. We've got somebody from Washington State who's donating some equipment to make that possible. Um, and always trying to do it better, keep that mousetrap ever improved, right? Well, I didn't mean to interrupt your, um, the, the rest of the season recap. Um, but after, after that storm, what, what else do you uh, investigate? It's interesting, Sally turned into beta uh, we went from Sally to Beta. It's like, how did that happen? Because it was just this flood of activity. We had a big burst. We ran through just about everything you know, that was left. Teddy, Vicky, Wilfred, Subtropical Storm Alpha. Boom, now we're up to Beta. And Beta was uh, you know, threatening Texas. 
And so that was the longest stretch that I was gone. I was gone for two weeks. And um, that was weird. Like, it was just like, man, I've been gone freaking forever. Um, anyway, so I went over to Texas for beta, uh, set up a lot of equipment. It was, it was the cool part about beta, a little side story. Um, I put one of the remote cameras on the piling of a house in Surfside Beach of one of the executives that works for the Weather Channel. He's a friend of mine, and uh, and it's no secret. His name is Tom Lee, and uh, he's one of the he's he's up there, right? And he has a, a house. His family has a house in Surfside Beach, and I was like, "Hey, you got a house down here? You know, where is it?" And I looked it up, and I was like, "Whoa!" I drove down there, and it was pretty exciting. They had some waves coming in, and you know. I even flew the drone down there and it was pretty remarkable. And I put a camera right on his piling and it turned out it was a really good shot because the power didn't go out and these nest cameras do really well at night. And you could just watch the Gulf come in and out on the tides uh, from one of the executives of the weather channel, you know, right at his house. And he thought, Hey, pretty good way to keep an eye on my house. Um, and we met a lot of cool people down there. Uh, uh, as we always do. And, you know, the people that we meet is remarkable um, and we just started thinking, you know, this is a Greek name. We're up to beta and I can't remember what the date was. It's like late September, I guess. And we're already to the B of the Greeks. It's like, geez, where's this going to go? And now of course we know it kept on going. Um, but after beta, there's a little bit of a, a lull, just a little. And then it was Delta. And I guess now's as good a time as any to get into Delta um, and the thing about Delta, I'll say this, I saw a lot of people, uh, you get the hype of something and then you get the anti-hype. And I think both of them can be dangerous, obviously. You know, people that will put the one snapshot of the 40 inch snow, the Cat 5 hurricane parked over Charleston from the Euro 10 day or the GFS 9 day. You see it all the time. We, we know. But then you got the guys and the gals on social that they want to play the other side that I called it, that it wasn't going to be anything. And da, 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 da. it's like, just stop. You know, I don't want to tell you what to do, but stop. Just go down the middle and just look at the facts. And there were so many people saying that Delta was probably not going to amount to much because the Gulf had cooled because we had those early cold fronts. But there was this research that I had looked into from one of the HRD people and uh, other aspects that, um, and, and it wasn't like the 26 Celsius isotherm was 400 miles south of Creole, Louisiana. It was like 20 miles, man, you know, and there's other factors at play. You guys know this, that it's not just baroclinic stuff, but um, it's not all about sea surface temperatures and upper ocean heat content. There's more to it. If the atmosphere is primed, you're going to extract every bit of latent heat out of that gulf that you can possibly do. And that's exactly what Delta did. And that thing exploded and became a very powerful hurricane for that part of October. And it was, you know, if it wasn't for Laura, Delta probably would have been the big story for Louisiana. Ha as it stands, it came on top of Laura, which was weird. Like you're driving around setting stuff up and you're like, there's still stuff wrecked from Laura, debris piles, 10, 12 feet high. And we're putting cameras up in the same place um and gosh that was so bizarre uh delta came in right at dark by the way that was the closest that we came in 2020 to launching our weather balloon in the eye of a hurricane was delta uh, we were ready 
uh, out in somewhere in South Central Louisiana. Um, it just, the eye kind of never calmed down for us and where we were. It was filling, as they say, and um, it was never had the calm winds and it was getting dark. It came close on Zeta too. We'll get to that. But Delta, like the countdown was on. You're like, okay, let's do this. Let's do this. Turn on the this, the that. And we were ready to go through the checklist and then it got dark and it was still like, 60 70 mile per hour wind even when the you know there was no rain it was weird you know when the backside gets hollowed out they just tend to do that um delta was amazing because when it was over and we went back to pick up our equipment the next day they had no barricades no police no parish sheriffs whatever they're called down there nothing you know and that's just louisiana it's like hey you're gonna be dumb enough to go and get yourself killed we're not gonna stop you and we went down and started picking up our stuff and there was nobody down there. And I don't mean like, yeah, it's a few cars. There's nobody, not a single living human being down there. They had all evacuated or they were already gone after Laura and we went down to get our stuff. And that's one of those moments that there's just no way to describe it. Um, it got dark. We had to get over to Creole and get the last camera from Creole and when you say that the Milky Way came out, you know, because if there was no lights on, that's an understatement. It's like the closest you'll ever get to primordial Louisiana in the Jurassic era is after a hurricane like Delta, which was on top of Laura, that just took the grid out. There's not a light within 50 miles. And it was remarkable. It was like a religious experience, to be honest with you. And there's alligators and raccoons and all kinds of wildlife down there. And we just felt like there's three of us, me, Brent, Greg. We felt like we were one with this weather universe. And I know it's a weird thing, but it was this amazing thing that I'm glad it happened, put it that way. And we safely retrieved our stuff. And it was one of the greatest adventures I've ever had. A couple more things, Mark. Um, Zeta and Ada, mm -hmm. I think I pronounced that right. Uh, impacts here in the, in, the, in, in the United States. But after that, we had a couple of storms uh, theta and iota that just wreaked havoc on central america i mean these were strong strong hurricanes so as we kind of round out the greek alphabet what's right. your i mean I, I know ada and theta um ada and zeta you were able to to right. be a part of but not the last two but what's your memories of, of those last four storms well zeta uh was a surprise um because it overachieved the Gulf was cooler by then, and yet, I mean, it came close to becoming a Category 3. Remarkable. And again, the atmosphere was just like, wow. And it, it intensified right up until landfall. And it had major impacts in Louisiana and Mississippi. Uh, Greg Nordstrom has damage to his house. You know, nothing significant, and it's all insured and so forth. But he became the hunted. And... Um, uh, we were in the eye of that one down in uh, Slidell. That was amazing. Um, you know, just the surge, though. That's the thing I'm trying to remember. The surge, uh, even though Zeta came in at night, this came in right at dark. The storm surge in Mississippi was remarkable. Uh, and there's a couple of instances there where our cameras are going to provide some very telling data to the National Hurricane Center Storm Surge Unit as we work through that. To, to turn the video into data where we can find still water elevations in that surge. Uh, and you know how we're going to do it, even though it got dark, we're going to use the transformer explosions and freeze frame that at some of these peak surge times and enhance the video 
and try to find the high water mark on a building that we can definitively go out and survey and say, oh, look. And as an example, we had a camera on the backside of the uh, Hard Rock in Biloxi. There's a little marina back there. And that camera box was at um, four meters or three meters, four, four meters above the water. And the camera went underwater and it actually uh, took out the camera. And some of that was wave action. But in those waves, and Shay, you know, all of you know this, you smooth it out and you can get that high water mark uh, from video. And we're really looking forward to helping the Hurricane Center Storm Surge Unit with that as we go forward. So Zeta was very successful. Um, uh, surprising again, because it, it, you know, it's getting on, to, it was freaking two days for Halloween, right? And very strong hurricane into the central Gulf Coast. And then Ada, boy, what Ada did down in Central America, uh, and I will be on record as saying that I am 100% in that they will upgrade Ada to a Cat 5 in the post-analysis, because you remember the recon planes were going down there and they had to turn around and come back. And it just, we missed a lot of data. Uh, and when they finally got in there, there were some to support. I just think in the off season, when they do their analysis, that the uh, the wind and the Doppler and the SFMR data will show that Ada was our second Cat 5 of 2020. I'm 99% sure of that. Um, and then, you know, it looked like it could come around and be a real big problem for Florida. Uh, luckily for Florida, it was not a real big problem, but it gave me an excuse to go down to the Keys. So I did. And um, that was, uh, uh, honestly, I really wanted to go down and kind of know the lay of the land for a future event. I've never been to the Keys for a landfall, believe it or not, in my entire career. Um, and so I went to the Keys. We dealt with it down there. Wasn't too big a deal. And then we went up to Tampa, St. Pete, another place that I haven't been to, and set up camera equipment around there, worked with some of the locals that knew the area really well. That helped a lot and we nailed it. We got some amazing storm surge shots right along some of those causeways. And um, I felt like Ada was another one of those warning shots that that was a November tropical storm. And if it had been a month earlier, it would have been a lot stronger if everything else was equal. And Tampa Bay would have had an eight to 12 foot surge, not four to you know, two to four that they had. And it just shows you you know, bypass them and then it kind of died out going into Cedar Key, man, it just shows you how vulnerable Tampa Bay, St. Pete are, uh, those areas are to hurricanes. And you never know, sometimes the end of the season kind of shows you where you're going to pick up the next year. I've learned that. It's not always a good match, but sometimes you can get some clues from that, that clustering, and especially if we're going to happen to have two very similar years to each other. Uh, maybe that's a warning shot. And then it was Iota. Theta, I think, was like a, I don't even remember, didn't do much out in the Eastern Atlantic, I think. But Iota, right. wow, that was, you know, poor Central America. Um, and I was in touch with a guy on, I guess, Facebook Messenger for the Hurricane Track page who lives down, uh, oh, man, it's the island that's south of Providencia. Uh, he was real worried about it, and it, it reminded me of Irma when I was communicating with a guy on Facebook that lived on St. Bart's and he was scared for his life because 185 Irma was coming for him. And this guy was down there on that Island South of, um, I think it's San Andres or something, uh, South of Providencia. Of course, that Island Providencia, these are Colombian governed islands was just annihilated. Um, we saw the devastation from there and that was it. Thankfully, you know, Iota, 
um, capped off 30 name storms, the ace of around 180, right? Um, 13 hurricanes and uh, six of them, whatever it was, major, right? Something like that. <laughs> Start to even remember. And um, maybe that's it. Maybe we'll be done for the whole, like, we won't be like 05 and we're still naming these things in January, but I wouldn't be surprised if we get something in the subtropics at this point. Well, Mark, uh, one more thing to kind of wrap up this hurricane season, and we talked a little bit about it earlier, is how many storms we saw this rapid intensification, yes. you know, a day, day and a half before landfall. Um, tell, I mean, what's your thoughts? I, I'm not asking for a scientific or right. you know, just what, what are your thoughts about that? I mean, cause you know, we, you've mentioned previous, you know, sometimes these seasons kind of foretell what's going to happen next season. Uh, this is a scary trend and it's a trend that, that, uh, that really needs to be watched. Well, you know, the simple answer is it's concerning because we look at the ACE and some of that ACE, the accumulated cyclone energy was generated. You know, like we look at Laura, it was 150 mile per hour hurricane, but it did so in that last day before landfall. And Michael did the same thing in 2018 uh, Matthew rapidly intensified on approach to Florida. And, you know, it was very fortunate for Florida that it just scraped by 20 miles offshore. Dorian stopping, I don't know, whatever it was, 180 miles short of West Palm Beach, our vicinity, as a rapidly intensifying Category 5. And we're getting real close here to some absolutely mind-boggling disasters because these hurricanes are intensifying close to land. Uh, Ada and Iota, both intensifying real close to South America like they did. That was a similar theme in 2005. Now, we had a much higher ACE score in 2005. And you say, well, yeah, there's a lot of, you know, we had four Cat 5s that year. Well, think about it. All four, here's a similarity. All four of those Category 5s in 05, yes, they were much stronger than what we had in 2020. Uh, looking at the big picture, but Katrina, the entire life cycle of Katrina was about five days, the whole thing. And in that five days, it became a Cat 5. Rita, same thing. Tropical storm in the Bahamas, Cat 5 in the central Gulf makes landfall as a three. The whole thing lasted less than five days, roughly. Wilma, a little longer, but it rapidly intensified. Twice, once on the approach to the Yucatan and another on its way into Florida and it made landfall as a three, if I recall. Uh, Emily, Dennis, both, you know, Dennis almost was a category five, rapidly intensifying. And here's the common thread. They all did so probably west of 75 degrees longitude, not like Irma, which was a category five way out in the Atlantic, Florence, way out in the Atlantic, very strong, Ivan. These long track hurricanes are so different than these ones that blow up in our backyard. And it's not just the United States that has to deal with these. Central America, Cuba had to deal with Gustav doing that in 2008. But there's this weird common thread between 05 and 20 that these massive hurricanes that we did have strengthened so quickly in, in our backyard. I don't know why. I don't know exactly why. Can you attribute it to the La Nina and the favorable pattern right over that area west of 75, south of 30 north? You know, there's, there's something going on there. And, you know, that's the thing. Can we see that kind of a pattern again ahead of time? And no, this is our bubble. This is our area we got to really look out for. 
uh, maybe that's one of the one of the next things that people like Dr. Klotzbach or you know Eric Webb or Levi Cowan, who works down at HRD now, maybe they can work on that pattern recognition for that favorable bubble that's going to give you those strong hurricanes. And if they're close to land, we really should know that. And kind of piggyback off that, we've had a few Twitter questions come in. Matthew Harding uh, wanted to know: Do you think we'll see something similar? Uh, in 2021 that we've seen in 2020. I mean, what are, I, I guess to kind of piggyback that, what is your outlook as we go into uh, next year's tropical season? Well, I think it's, and this is so easy to understand, it's highly dependent on the state of the ENSO, I think more than anything, the El Nino Southern Oscillation phenomenon. Right now, we are in at least a moderate La Nina. It's like negative 1.3 or higher or something. I mean, it's, it's a, the index is pretty low. And so that La Nina sticking around or not, and basically it's the absence of El Nino. If there's no El Nino and the Atlantic is warmer than average, especially in the main development region, um, then you typically have an above average season. But a season like 2020 where it's hyperactive and mega active, um, hopefully those are 15 years apart because this is just too much. But you look at 04, here's the interesting thing. 04 had, what, 15 names to warm, something like that? And the A score was way higher than 2020's was in 04. Uh, and yet 05 almost doubled the amount of name storms of 04. Its ace was a little higher, but they were back-to-back. You know what I'm saying? So I don't think you can look at that and say that 2020 is the 04 of the 0405 combo that 2021 would have 35 name storms or 40. Maybe it's a little bit of a reverse that next year we have 15 to 20 name storms, but some long trackers that the overall pattern stays favorable. Maybe that bubble shifts back out towards the uh, Southwest Atlantic and maybe Florida and the Carolinas comes into play. There's just no way to know this early on, but the biggest thing to track, it's easy to do is the anomaly data, the state of the ENSO, how the Atlantic's doing, and if those two puzzle pieces, a negative ENSO and a positive AMO or just a warm Atlantic, doesn't even have to fit the classic anti-Atlantic multi-decadal oscillation. I know I'm throwing all these terms out. But if the Atlantic's warmer than the Pacific is, look out, generally speaking. Yeah, we're, yeah. we're basically going to need an El Nino to save us. And then that's going to have its own set of problems because the globe will be like five degrees warmer than it should be on average or some stupid stuff like that. I mean, we can't win. Yeah, you're right, Mark. I mean, I think the positive AMO definitely attributes to it, even positive NAO. Right. Um, and then you add the Madden-Julian oscillation, which allows for the, the shearing effect to lessen across mm-hmm. lar- large portions of the Atlantic. And you get that combination. That's what we had this year. I mean, I, I can't I can't count how many phase eights we had, which basically yeah. it, it parks itself over us where there's less shear. Right. Um, but there were there were several iterations of that, and even when there was not in that phase, there was still right these you know rapid intensifications occurring. You know, even with shear, it was yeah, they would find like, these little uh, pockets, yeah, you know, and take advantage mm-hmm. of that. But you know, twenty twenty one will probably be another active season because I have never seen we that we have an El Nino after a strong La Nina. I cannot recall the last time that happened. It's always a first. And we know that the Euro, we talked about this before going with the taping here, but or the recording, who tapes anymore, right? Um, that uh, the Euro, I think, is always going to want to show an El Nino or a warming. And so it's just the way it is. It's got a warm bias for that. Um, 
But, you know, we'll keep an eye on stuff like the Southern Oscillation Index. And as long as that stays wildly positive like it has been, that's a good, literally, a good barometer, quite literally, to follow that. There's ways to watch. That's, that's what's so neat now is we can actually watch it. It's kind of like watching the NFL in the offseason. The Super Bowl is over, and then the Pro Bowl is over, and it's not like, oh, that's it. You know, there's an entire network dedicated to the NFL. We have a network dedicated to weather. That's the Weather Channel. There's other channels, too. But it doesn't all end on December 1st. We're on top of it until the next season. And we're getting better. I'll go back to the start of this whole thing. We saw this coming in March and April. Not to this extent, and you can never get the details, but the overall pattern was very well telegraphed. I think the best in any of the modern age of numerical weather prediction. Yeah, I I'd certainly agree. Uh, speaking of 2021, hurricanetrack.com. Uh, what's, what's, what are you looking forward uh, to next year, Mark? Any exciting projects? I know you've, uh, this year I've been uh, seeing you're, you've been doing some discussions with several guys in the, in the tropical world and uh, doing some, uh, some off season discussions. Mm-hmm. So what's, uh, what's going on over at hurricanetrack.com and what are you guys working on for next year? A lot, a lot of projects. Uh, we had a great group of people that volunteered to help out this year. Um, that really helped our back end and we're going to, you know, and we grew the crowdfunding substantially, which was a very pleasant surprise, especially to be able to reinvest into more equipment to do more things. You know, obviously I want to be able to support my family and have a career out of this. And that helps that, um, since I'm independent, you know, this is what I do for a job. Uh, but it's the, the, the way it grew and how fast it grew and to the extent that it did meant that we were able to afford more stuff. And we put that stuff into action and that's what we want to keep doing. And we're definitely going to have a much stronger initiative in the off season to the extent that we even have a new logo, you know, uh, a new branding. And it's my Twitter handle logo right now. I think it's on Facebook as well. Haven't changed YouTube yet. I'll have to do that, but it's like a, it says hurricane track. It says off season, but it's a, a winter look. It's got a snowflake instead of a hurricane and um, some wintry colors. And it's funny because it was a high school kid uh from illinois that designed that for us I, I i don't have time to learn illustrator and do that i used to do that many years ago uh that's that whole idea of people helping out man it's incredible so our our goals um i want to have the opportunity to go out if there's let's assume these events happen first of all a really big bomb cyclone nor'easter kind of deal you know is it new england is it the Northeast or the Mid-Atlantic proper. I don't know. I don't care. I just want one of those. My favorite is Situate down to the Cape. Those are my favorites, to be honest with you. I want one of those. Uh, I'd like to put in an order for a big bomb cyclone, winter storm, preferably in February, Uh, a big lake effect event, a lake effect event in Western New York, where I was last year from Syracuse up to Watertown through the Tug Hill Plateau. I know there's other areas, Cleveland, Buffalo, et cetera, but uh, um, I really like that part of upstate New York. Uh, so I want a big lake effect event. Um, then um, a high plains blizzard, one of those bomb cyclones that moves out of the front range, 980 on the pressure, big comma shape out over the Great Plains. I got a good friend and colleague up in Sioux Falls, Derek Thompson, uh, who's got a nice mesonet truck. I'm going to send him some cameras. He's going to put them out. My goal is to like fly into Denver rent a vehicle, bring some cameras with me. We scatter them around South Dakota, out in the Black Hills. Nobody's ever done that. 
And you got traffic cams and you got storm chasers. And again, they do great. But I want to stick a camera on an overpass out on, what is it, Interstate 70 or something out there and show you that blizzard from the ground, basically. And, um, and then have these pressure sensors and temperature sensors attached with it that we're working on that feeds that information in real time. That's our next big project is that every camera box will have a Kestrel with a Raspberry Pi that feeds that live weather data. The only thing we're going to be missing is wind. We've got to talk to Weatherflow about getting some anemometers. You know, uh, the, uh, the Arm Youngs are just too expensive, man. It's killing me, especially when people are throwing them into the bayous. But uh, I digress. Yeah, we're going to have a big data. We're going to have 20 cameras next year, and each one of them is going to have live data with that camera. Um, what else? Oh, then uh, after that in May, we're going to have this big initiative to go out and put all these 20 cameras and all these sensors and the weather balloon project uh, and have a big test during a severe weather outbreak over multiple days uh, sometime in May. It's not a schedule. Oh, we're going to be there from May 10th to the 15th. We're just going to wait for the pattern. And when the pattern says go, we're going to assemble the crew and drive out there and um, hopefully do so mask-free because the vaccines have been working. That's what we're hopeful for. <laughs> to go back into that ugliness of the COVID, I mean, we can't escape that. But you know, looking ahead to May, it actually might be a time of some big celebration. We can keep our fingers crossed that we can enjoy the weather and do so uh, back more towards what I, I don't, I don't use that phrase a new normal. I hate it. I call it the alternate universe. I want the alternate universe to be dissolved. Well, Mark, we appreciate that. Always appreciate your time with us. And uh, we, we wish you the best on this off season. Hopefully you get a little downtime before the, yeah. the winter storms get cranked up. Agreed. Uh, we, uh, we always appreciate you joining us around this part of the, this time of the year and kind of recapping uh, the, the tropic season. Uh, I don't know how you want this. Hopefully it's not as active or maybe you do want it active next year, but whatever you want, we hope you get it. Well, the way I look at it, if there's going to be hurricanes, I look at it like what Jack Nicholson said in a few good men and you know, where he said, uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll do the phrase without the cuss word where he says, you want me on that wall, you know, right. You want me there. If there's hurricanes, you know, you want us out there. You want me and you want, uh, the others that do this uh, to, to do what we do and the support from the, the social media world and the crowdfunding world allows that to happen. And you know, my passion for the hurricanes and the extreme weather doesn't mean that I don't have empathy for the people that are affected. I absolutely do. And as long as they don't get mad at me for being passionate about what I do, you would never get angry with the firefighter who's headed off to put out the fire. Don't get angry with me that I happen to really enjoy being passionate about helping you in the end of the day. And that is to be aware, be educated and be excited about the weather. You know what I mean? And the more excited we are, the easier, easier it is to teach us. Definitely. So we, we always enjoy tracking you out there. And um, I know we only had an ESAES this year. And I think you joined in on one of our calls that, that we were doing our live coverage. So we always appreciate that as well. And uh, we hope you have a great Christmas season. You all as uh, well. 
yeah for you for you those who are watching uh, go check out mark's website hurricanetrack.com uh you can find out ways to help uh contribute to the the funds there to help uh mark and, and the crew get everything they need to get going for the tropical season and uh donate to their patreon account and uh we, we appreciate your work out there mark and once again uh, appreciate your time and for you guys who are watching thank you for watching we hope you have a great evening and we'll see you next time here yeah, thanks on the to Carolina the panel weather group great